The message you're about to listen to is a recording from God's favorite house. It is our prayer that you listen, your life will be transformed, and you will be taken to greater heights in your walk with Jesus. Amen. God bless you as you listen to this message. Praise the name of the Lord. So today we are looking at the second touch, the second touch, and um, we, we trust that God himself will lay his hands upon us and give us the second touch in the name of Jesus. Um, there's a story of um, a young boy named Johnny. Johnny um, usually likes to exaggerate situations. So when um, he gets an assignment from school, for instance, to um, narrate what happened over the weekend, Johnny will tell a very flamboyant story. And, oh, my dad and I went fishing <laughs> and we caught a whale, you know. And the whale we caught, that I actually caught the whale and my dad had to help me pull the whale in with my fishing line, you know. And, and the teacher was like, Johnny, you know that didn't happen. But Johnny says, it really happened. We caught a whale, you know. And the teacher said, okay, you know what, Johnny? What if I told you that I was coming from home to school and a huge lion came out to attack me on the road. And as I was about to run, a little dog just showed up from the corner and killed the lion. You know, and Johnny was excited and glee. I mean, his face was beaming. And, and the teacher said, would you believe that, Johnny? <laughs> Johnny says, yes, I'll believe it because that was my dog. <laughs> so Johnny, like many people, think that they need to exaggerate, you know, and they actually own you know, characters in exaggerated stories to, to make it look like it is real and give authentication to it. But you see, with God, God doesn't need us to exaggerate. He doesn't need us to embellish stories for us to see or his miracles or for people to believe his miracles. God does miracles. That is his business. God is in the business of doing miracles. He's in the business of doing miracles. So, like Johnny, some, some perhaps preachers or Christians feel, oh, they need to tell a huge flamboyant story, you know, and actually own the story until they can't even distinguish the, the, the real characters from the fake characters. But that is not God. God can make you catch, catch a whale with a fishing line. And that will be a legitimate miracle. You don't need to make it up. You don't need to make God look good. God is a God of miracles. And that is a major, major question. You know, I get asked by um, my pastor friends or Christian friends from the West, you know, and the question is, why do we experience fewer miracles than 
you guys in Africa, as they say, or you or the people in Asia, the Christians in Asia or, or the Latinos, you know, how come those in the West experience fewer miracles? And, and, and the truth is because they don't have a, they feel rather that they don't have a need for God. They feel they don't have a need for God. The father of modern philosophy, Aristotle, stated that sin is believing. To Aristotle, sin is believing. Jesus taught the opposite. Jesus said, believing is sin. Believing is sin. The foundation of certain um, um, societies separate the church and the state. The church, your spirituality, your faith is different from the state. But the truth is, there is absolutely nothing like that. You cannot separate the secular from the spiritual. Africans, Asians, Latinos easily see that the supernatural and the natural are integrated and they coexist. The supernatural and the natural, for the African, they understand that the supernatural and the natural can coexist. And as Christians, we need to ensure that we are not deceived. The supernatural is real and obviously influences the secular. So when we go about our lives, we should understand that God is a spirit. He exists. He wants to participate in the state. Yes, he wants to influence policies. God wants to. Because think about it. If you remove the faith, your faith from your business, from your home, from your schools, what you get is darkness because Christ is light. When you remove Christ, when you remove light, when light recedes, darkness happens. When light recedes, darkness happens. In Hebrews 11, verse 6, Hebrews 11, 6, Hebrews 11, 6, the word of God says that, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him, to God, must believe that he exists, must believe that he is, he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those that earnestly seek him. God is a rewarder of those that earnestly seek him. So when you come to God, you have to believe that God is, God exists. God exists. God is a spirit. You can't see him, but God exists. So, when you come to God, you have to believe that he is, not only is he, he rewards those that seek him. So, there are tangible results for connecting with an invisible God. So, God ensures that there are tangible, physical results that are benefits of those that connect to him, the spiritual, invisible God. Second Corinthians 10, 2 Corinthians 10, 
4 to 5. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 to 5 says, The weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Since we demolish argument and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So there are weapons that we wage war with and they are not physical weapons. They are not weapons of the world. They have divine powers to pull down the things that don't exist. So you need to understand that faith is required to engage the supernatural. Faith is required to engage a God you cannot see. So what, what, what is faith? Faith, what is faith? Faith is believing that God will do what he says he will do. Faith is believing that God is who he says he is. Faith is believing that not only is he who he says he is, that he will do what it says it will do. Faith is doing what you believe God wants you to do regardless of how you feel. Faith is doing what you believe God wants you to do regardless of how you feel. But if you think about it, what is God's first language? What's God's language? Is, is it Hebrew? Is, 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 is Hebrew God's language? Or is it English? Or is it a Bibio? Is God's language Yoruba or Igbo? What's God's language? What language does God speak? What language is it that when you speak the language, God gets you? The language that God speaks. God's language. God's first language is faith. If God were to have a language, it is faith. It is faith. When you want to communicate or connect to the supernatural, invisible God, you must have faith. Without faith, you cannot connect to God. So the first thing the enemy does is to attack your faith. Is to attack your faith. The first thing he does is to make you second guess what you have already held there. The first thing he does is to attack your faith. And the first principles of faith is seeing the invisible. Because faith is the substance of the things that you cannot see. So holding what you cannot see, that is faith. That is faith. It doesn't matter if you are looking for direction, if you are looking for healing, if you are looking for deliverances, if you are looking for children, if you are looking for blessing, if you are looking for provision, if you are looking for a breakthrough. Faith is seeing the invisible and holding the invisible. You must be able to hold the promotion before you can experience the promotion. And one of the tricks of the enemy is that, you know, because we are human beings, we, there's an emotional side to us, and um, sometimes 
while we can control many parts of our lives, sometimes we, when we are not deliberate, our emotions can play tricks on us. So the enemy can throw things up that try to mess up our emotions. And when we don't feel, you know, I've heard people say, oh, pastor, I don't feel I have faith. You know, so that means I don't have faith. Oh, I don't feel that uh, I have faith. That means I don't have faith. You know, the truth is this. You don't need to feel that you have faith before you can begin to engage the principles of faith. You, you don't need to because faith is not an emotion. Faith is a choice. Faith is a choice. It's not an emotion. Now, you are sitting on a, on a, on a, on a chair. You, whether you feel that the chair exists or the chair does not exist, the chair exists. When you walk out of this place, whether you feel that the sky is up there, try and feel that there's no sky and walk out. Guess what? There'll be a sky up there. So what am I saying? Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not a feeling. There's a story in um, Mark chapter 8, Verse 22 to 26. Mark 8, 22 to 26. He says, when they arrived at Bethsaida, now we are getting into the second touch um, part of things. Some people brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch the man and he healed him. And healed him, sorry. They begged him to touch the man and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village, then spitting on the man's eye. <laughs> he laid his hands on him, on him and asked, can you see anything yet? Can you see anything now? The man looked around. Yes, he said. I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees, actually. Walking around, <laughs> Jesus placed his hand on the man's eyes again, and his eyes opened. Jesus gave him a second touch, and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I pray that you will see everything clearly. In the mighty name of Jesus. He could see everything clearly. Jesus sent him away saying, don't go back into the village on your way home. Now, first things that jump out at me um, reading this is the fact that the man's response indicated that he could, he could see before. Because how did he know how men look like. How, okay, let's say it's physically touched people, even if you knew how men look like, how did you know the men look like trees that are walking? So just a very detailed description of somebody that must have seen before. So definitely this man had his sight before now. But when we look at verse 22, it says, when Jesus arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus and begged him to touch the man and heal him. 
some people, everyone say some people, some people brought this man to Jesus. Now, the question for you and I, you know, as, as we talked about last week, when we talk about a, um, living a life of gratitude and telling other people about the good news, the, the question is, who do you need to bring to Jesus? There are people that are blind, spiritually blind around you. There are people that are emotionally blind around you. There are people that are intellectually blind around you that needs Jesus. Who do you need to bring to Jesus? Who do you need to bring? I mean, you need to wrestle with that question. Who do you need to bring to Jesus? Second, who needs to bring you to Jesus? Who needs to bring, regardless of your level spiritually, there's a higher level with Christ, with God, that you need people that will usher you into that level. So who needs to bring you into Jesus, um, to Jesus? Who needs to bring you to Jesus? Think about it. Who needs, what are the barriers spiritually that you are currently experiencing? Do you have the relationships? Who needs to bring you to Jesus? Those two questions, you need to take them home and wrestle with them. And wrestle with them. The first is, who do you need to bring to Jesus? The second is, who needs to bring you to Jesus? When we jump to verse 23, Jesus took the blind man by hand. That's huge. And led him out of the village. Jesus took the blind man by hand and led him out of the village. Jesus took the blind man by hand. So, for four things that we see here in this second touch um, of story, that the first is this. Many times, God has to remove us from our circumstances in order to build our faith and gain our trust. Many times, God has to actually remove us from our circumstances there are things that are, maybe are safe zones. Some of us, it's our comfort zones. God has to remove us from our comfort zones. God has to challenge you out of your comfort zone for him to build your faith and gain your trust. I heard a story, a true story, of um, a young um, immigrant. It was his pastor that was sharing the story um, that I was listening to. A, a, a young immigrant um, came into the United States. And on, on arrival, of course, he was coming from um, one of the South American countries. On, on arrival, he was mistaken to be um, a criminal and he was arrested and taken to jail. And he was coming from, obviously, poverty, where he was coming from, and he was coming to meet his uncle in the U.S. And he was in jail for two days before his uncle, I mean, got wind of where he was and, and was going to um, bail him out. But something interesting happened while he was in jail. This guy had a room to himself in jail, had wall-to-wall carpeting, had cable TV, could, I mean, had food, very good food, had a doctor check him up every week 
that when his uncle came to bail him out, he was a teenager at the time, the boy refused to leave the prison. He said he was not going. You know, it took a lot of persuasion, a lot of, that this is confinement. He says, if this is confinement, I am okay. You know, just I'm okay here. You know, because what else does a man need? He has cable TV. He has one-to-one run. He had everything going for him. And many times, what we see as life is actually prison. Many times, what we see as enjoyment is actually confinement. And sometimes, God has to remove us from those circumstances so that he can take us to where he wants us to be. Sometimes, our surroundings are unhealthy and they create spiritual blindness. And it's huge. And he has to jolt us out of it. Sometimes God needs to put you in a new, um, new, in new circumstances in order to build your faith. Remember the story in Genesis 37, the story of, of Joseph. God needed, or rather allowed, <laughs> Joseph to be sold as a slave eventually landing in Egypt as a prisoner. Like Joseph, sometimes we are on our way to the palace, but we need to go through the prison. But we shouldn't be like the young man that refuses to let go of the prison when it was time to go. We should be able to embrace what God has in mind. So, sometimes, God needs to take us out of this village. Sometimes, many times, it's the village of our thinking. We have been taught to think in a certain way from how our culture has conditioned us. God needs to take us out of the village of our thinking so that he can change our lives. Sometimes the village of our thinking is a village of, 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 of control. For some people, it's a village of, of confusion. For some people, it's a village of disorder. Everything must be in disarray before they can function. If you put them, on, you give them a clean table, they must scatter the table before they can begin to work. They don't do it deliberately, but when you look at the table, it's scattered. For some, it is, it is a village of association. But whatever village it is, God will take you out in the name of Jesus. Say amen. Verse 23. 23 to 24. says, Jesus took the blind man by hand and led him out of the village, then spitting. It's huge. Spitting on the man's face, he laid his hands on him and asked, Can you see anything now? The man looked around. Yes, he said. I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Now, 
Jesus had to do what only Jesus could do by spitting on the man's eyes, laying his hands on his eyes, and healing him. But the man had to do what only he could do. Jesus said to him, can you see anything now? The man kept his face, eyes shut, head still. The miracle was not going to progress to the next touch. The man needed to look around. He needed to open his eyes and look around. That is so instructive. Many times God has done what he can do, but we refuse to do what we can do, which is we refuse to look around and open our eyes. So God will do what we can't do. And we need to do what God won't do for us. So number two, we see that Jesus uses everything in his arsenal to save us, deliver us, and demonstrate his love towards us. We see here, he, he, was, he just arrived at Bethany. He just arrived at the village. And they brought the man to him. Jesus took the man by the hand, took him outside of the village. It took some effort. I mean, he, he put his reputation on the line. Imagine you, you <laughs> I mean, you come to church and they said, um, okay, you need to be prayed for. And you come outside and pastor is spitting on you. <laughs> what? I mean, that will make news on social media that the spitting pastor... <laughs> You know, I'm not saying pastor should be spitting on people or abusing people, but we see here that Jesus didn't put his reputation on the line. He spat on this guy's face. So the Lord will use anything to save us, to deliver us, to show that he loves us, and to give us the breakthrough that we require. In fact, this is the first time in history, in the history of Jesus' life and, and ministry, that he will have to heal someone twice. The first time ever. Everyone that Jesus prayed for up until that time had immediate healing. This was the first time that Jesus prayed for someone and the person was not healed immediately. I could imagine that Jesus laid his hands after spitting putting his hand on, on the guy, you know. Usually, when Jesus does that, or before he even does that, people touch him and they say they are healed. Now he does that. What I think he expected was that the man should say, oh, I can see. And the man didn't say anything. And there was like an awkward moment that Jesus is like, in Jesus' name, I finished praying. You know, Jesus doesn't pray in Jesus' name, but you know what I mean. You know, he says, okay, you are healed in Jesus' name. And Jesus probably opened one eye and looked at the guy. Is this seen? You know, and the guy was just there. And Jesus had to break the silence. He said, can you see anything? Can you see anything now? I mean, it's so embarrassing. You know, Jesus, the son of God, you know, healing someone and still had to check. Yeah, boy, can you see anything yet? You know? I've prayed a very powerful prayer for you. Can you see anything yet? Has the miracle happened yet? 
as your miracle happened yet. And the man said, oh, yeah, I can see something, you know, but it's not really clear. I can see men walking around like trees. Jesus will do anything to do the miraculous in our lives. God's biggest challenge with us is not, has not been, and can never be, doing miracles. God's biggest challenge with us is convincing us that he wants to do a miracle. That's, that's where our work is. God is not trying to go to the gym so that he can be strong enough to do a miracle or spiritual gym. God is not trying to be more powerful so that he can do a miracle in your life. God is trying to get you to a place where you can receive the miracles that he has for you. And that is huge. That is huge. Jesus stood before this man, laid his hand on this man the first time and said, can you see anything? Remember, they brought the man to Jesus so that he could heal, because Jesus had a reputation, you know. He, he touches you, you are, you, are, you are healed. He held this man, took him all the way out, outside of the village. The man was not healed. He got out of the village, he spat on his face. The man was not healed. Imagine Jesus' spit, you know, how lovely that would be on anybody's face. The man was not healed. He rubbed his hand, laid his hand, the man was not healed. He prayed a powerful prayer, maybe the man was not healed. At least fully. He asked him the question. Can you see anything yet? Read the Bible. There's nowhere else in Scripture that Jesus went through that. No, nowhere else. He wasn't still healed. Jesus did not back down, which leads us to the next point. And that is, the Lord will never abandon you nor forsake you. He will stick with you until his work is perfected in you. I mean, that is the beauty of the God we serve. He will stick with you until his work is perfectly finished. Jesus stood by him until his healing was perfected. Jesus stood by the man until the man got his healing. At that point, you know, <laughs> you, could, you could easily have said to the man, you can see I'll be okay. You'll just be going. You know, at least God has done something for you. <laughs> you should be happy. If you couldn't see before, clear at all. Now you can see partial. You can see. Oh, you can see. You can see well. This you are seeing things moving. You know, you can make your way to home. You can do some business. Perhaps if you get opticians involved or doctors involved, they could give you glasses to complete the healing. <laughs> Jesus didn't stop there. He stood by him until his healing was perfected. Don't you just love Jesus? Amazing. How is it that we think that God will abandon us? And it's a lesson for us too. How should we stand with people until 
they get the breakthrough that they need. Huge lesson. Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6 says, Be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. We are confident in this very fact that God that began a good work in you will bring it to perfection in the name of Jesus. This is a classic example. Jesus did not stop with the first touch. Jesus needed to bring a second touch to bring his work to perfection. Jesus will do anything he needs to do to perfect your miracles, even if it means a second touch. We go through life, we see people that turn their backs on us, and we think that's how God is. But sometimes, for some people, it's their parents, their biological parents, maybe the father that has turned his back on you. And because of your experience with your earthly father, you struggle, you struggle with your heavenly father. You struggle with Jesus. You struggle. Will God abandon me? Can God stick it out with me? Will God be faithful and loyal and, and, and abide? For some of us, there are people that have said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It could be a marriage. It could be um, your wife worked out on you or your husband worked out on you. And, you, know, and, and you, you feel that you know, God one day may just leave you or you're not good enough. He will just abandon you. See, God is saying to you this morning, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Praise the name of the Lord. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that is the picture we see here. How many of you need a miracle? I believe very strongly that in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the miracle will be perfected in Jesus' name. I believe very strongly in my spirit that as you open your heart to God, God doesn't want to set you up so that he can let you down. God doesn't want to put you on a pedestal so that he can pull the plug or pull the chair under your feet. God wants to stay with you till the very end, till the, regardless of what your earthly experience has been, if you open your life up to God, it will stick with you till the very end. Even when you go through the waters, it says, I will be with you. Isaiah 43, verse 2. Isaiah 43, verse, from verse 2. It says, when you go through deep waters, it says, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, some of us, we are going through deep waters. God is saying, I will be with you. Yet for some of us, we are going through rivers of difficulty. God is saying, you will not drown. You will not drown. Says when you walk through the fire of oppression, and, and some of us, we are going through what can be described as the fire of oppression. It says, you will not be consumed. You will not be burned up. 
when you go through the fire of oppression, it says. It says the flame will not consume you. Sometimes it's your faith. It appears your faith is going through deep waters. You don't even know what you believe anymore. Sometimes your faith is going through the fire. Sometimes it's your faith. Sometimes it's your finances that is going through the deep waters. Sometimes, interestingly, <laughs> it's your health. But as we enter a new season as a church, I want you to trust the God of heaven, the maker of the heavens and the earth, that the same God that gave this man a second touch will give you a second touch in the name of Jesus. The same God that stood with this man, with this man, will stand by you. In the name of Jesus. The same God that did not allow him to be drowned, literally, will make sure you are not drowned. In the mighty name of Jesus. So we go to the final point. Verse 26. Jesus sent him away. That this was when this man was, has been perfectly healed. This man has been perfectly healed. Jesus sent him away, saying, don't go back into the village on your way home. Don't go back into the village on your way home. <laughs> this is huge. It's huge. Jesus wants us not to go back to the village. What was not good for you in obtaining your miracle is not good for you in sustaining your miracle. What was not good for you in obtaining the breakthrough it's not good for you in sustaining the breakthrough. What wasn't good for you in acquiring the level that God has brought you into is absolutely not good for you in sustaining the level. Now, if you look at that story, <laughs> Bethsaida, there is something about Bethsaida that wasn't good for that man. There's something about Bethsaida that wasn't right for him. There's something, you know, you need to understand your destiny and the things that are compatible with your destiny and the things that are incompatible with your destiny. Bethsaida was, um, in, in, in the Bible days, I think till now, it's, it's, a, it's a fishing, commercial, prosperous, Settlement. It's like a village by the river, and there's a lot of ships, boats going back and forth, bringing merchants, bringing goods, fish, trading, and all that stuff. So it's a very um, prosperous place to be in. So the blind man, most likely, most likely, was a beggar. Most likely. Or at least 
had people that were well-to-do around him. So being in Bethsaida was like a strategic position for him to get some change. <laughs> you see, but now levels have changed. And God is saying, don't go back to that place. Now for some of us, there are places or things or associations we needed to keep to sustain us. But your level, by the time you leave this service in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, would have changed. Jesus will have given you a second touch. And he's saying to you, don't go back to the village. There's something about Bethsaida that wasn't right for this man. You know, even physically, some person may eat peanuts and they are good. They are enjoying it. Another person may eat the same peanuts and break out in rashes. Peanuts is not necessarily the issue. The person is allergic to peanuts. When Jesus encountered this man, they are what they call, I, I, I need to, um, <clears throat> for time, I need to explain this, but I will explain it as, as clearly as I can for, for the time we have. There are things called spiritual powers. They are spiritual principalities of governing certain areas. There are things that would thrive in certain areas that would be resisted in certain other areas. So, <laughs> Bethsaida was a place that resisted the, the vision of this man, the opening of the eye of this man, as it were. So, Jesus needed to take him out of Bethsaida. Jesus himself, for some of us, Bethsaida will represent a place where people will not believe in you. Sometimes they are relatives. Sometimes they are childhood friends. Bethsaida represents a place where you are commonized and you cannot achieve your potential. Jesus had to struggle with this also in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 57. He says... And they, when Jesus went to his own village, <laughs> he says, and they were deeply offended and refused to believe him. He says, this is not Jesus. This small brother used to run down the street half naked. He's now coming and says that uh, he has a ministry. Which ministry? Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his own family. And so he did only a few miracles there because of their unbelief. So that locality, Nazareth could not receive, Jesus could not thrive as it were in Nazareth. So he had to leave. If Jesus had to leave, Nazareth, going back to, to the village was going to restrict Jesus. Jesus went back there, but it was restricted. We need to understand that 
everyone has a betider. Don't go back to betider. In, in church planting, I mean, um, I've experienced all sorts of things. Territorial spirits, battling principalities, dislodging principalities and powers to set up a church. We've gone to set up a church in the locality and they said to, me, to us that, oh, um, how come your church is going to be able to grow this big? Because in that locality, no church has been able to grow past 80 members, 80 members. And, you know, they just keep coming and going. But when we got there, by the grace of God, we broke, we displaced it. Now, Jesus was not interested in displacing it. And that's another thing you need to understand. You need to go with God. You need to flow with God. The fact that, why didn't Jesus displace the, the, the forces preventing this man from seeing in Bethsaida? Why did he have to bring the man out of the village? Why didn't he leave him in the village, displace the forces? Because that was not the flow of the Spirit of God. If the Spirit of God doesn't want you to engage, you don't engage. But God has sent us to a place to plant a church. It is our duty to dislodge the Spirit. And that is what we do. Praise the name of the Lord. But there was a time, some years ago, I was going to, um, to the Caribbean, one of the Caribbean islands, son of a church. And got in, flew to Barbados then, from Barbados to the, to the particular island. And I got in on the immigration queue. And they were having this carnival, you know, um, those islands and their carnivals, you know. And they had, and as I was on the queue, behind the immigration officer, I saw the, um, it's like, well, I would call it an idol now, the image of the carnival king or whatever the, it is. And as I saw it, it literally came alive. It's as if his eyes was even blinked, looking at me. And when I saw, I mean, obviously I could, I could see the spirit behind it. So when I saw it, immediately I wanted to engage it and, and, and dislodge it in the name of Jesus. And I felt the Holy Spirit says, don't do it. I'm like, ah. he says, don't do it. So, I ignored it, got my passport stamped, went in, had a very um, fruitful engagement. On my way out, I didn't ask why. I didn't, I mean, there's, there's no point. On my way out, I saw it again, and then the Holy Spirit explained to me, says, said to me that if you had engaged that principality, if you will, they would have deported you from that country. They would not have granted you entry. I was like, wow. See, they would have granted me. Now, am I, who has sent me? God has sent me. Now, some people say, well, I will dislodge it in the name of Jesus and nothing will happen. If God says you shouldn't, don't do it. Don't do it. You can't fight every battle available. You, don't, you only need to fight the battles that are assigned to you. So, Jesus was not interested in dislodging whatever was the influential spirit in 
Bethsaida. Jesus moved the man out of it and said, don't go back. On your way home, don't even pass that village. For some of us, Bethsaida could be a covering we've had, a spiritual covering we've had. You've come out, you've enjoyed great, by God's great spiritual insight. Now you're feeling that you're confident, you want to go back. God is saying, don't go back to Bethsaida. For some of us, Bethsaida is an old way of thinking. It's an old way of thinking. We are trapped in our old way. God has shown you a better way, but it's always easy to fall back or to want to go to Bethsaida and show them who you now are. But God says, it's not important. Don't go back to Bethsaida. It could be an old way of life. Don't go back to Bethsaida. So we see that today, Jesus will do anything to work the miracle in your life even if he has to give you a second touch. Even if he has to give you a second touch. So I want you to trust God and open your heart, open your heart to God. For some of us in this place, we need to, after this service, we need to see some of the pastors to actually physically touch us and pray with us. That's okay. But even before that happens, God will lay hands on you wherever you are seated. Let's burn our hearts as we burn our heads. I want you to think about what you have heard, what you have heard. The second touch for you must start with the first touch. You have never committed your life to Christ. You want to give your life to Jesus. You're saying, Pastor, that is me. I want to give my life to Jesus. What do I need to do? Should I come forward? No, you don't need to come forward. I'll pray with you wherever you are. You will be prayed with wherever you are seated. Oh, I used to be with God. I've, I've Can I come back to God? Yes, you can. Yes, you can.